0: Listeners are advised that the content of this episode is not legal advice and does not represent New South Wales Police Force's interpretation of any legislation. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is a member-owned bank, therefore the focus is always on the members. With an emphasis on people, Police Bank shows its commitment by supporting various organisations, community groups, social clubs and sporting teams within the policing community. Police Bank works hard today to continue to protect the financial security and well-being of members of the police force and their families, friends, and communities. Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. Australia's in the grip of a cybercrime epidemic. A recent survey by the Australian Institute of Criminology found that almost half of us have been a victim of some form of cybercrime in the past year. The most common form was online harassment or abuse, followed by malware. But what concerns police is the growth of cyber-enabled identity crime, fraud and other scams. Cybercrime costs the community an estimated $3.5 billion a year, and much of that flows offshore to offenders beyond the reach of local law enforcement. This is an underreported crime, but the New South Wales Police Force Cybercrime Unit is calling on victims to come forward and share their stories. Knowledge is power to these dedicated investigators who sometimes catch up with the villains.
1: My name is Detective Sergeant Julian Thornton. Uh, I've been in the New South Wales Police Force since 1999. Uh, I'm currently a team leader uh, at the Cyber Enabled Investigations Team of the Cybercrime Squad. I investigate major um, serious organised crime with a cyber element to it. Um, there's a perception out there that a cyber crime is cyber fraud. That's not correct. We talk about cyber enabled offences and cyber dependent offences. The cyber enabled offences is any offence that has a significant component of, of online behaviour, but there's also a physical component in the real world. And cyber dependent Offences are offences that only occur in cyberspace, so sort hacking and, and malware type offences. And I'm in a team, I'm a team leader in the cyber-enabled investigation team. So I think of it as a major crime squad with a cyber element to it. It's becoming so
0: common and most crime types are falling in New South
1: Wales, but cybercrime is shooting up. What are the stats there? In the last uh, 12 months, I think most cyber offences have gone up somewhere between sort of 20 and 100%. It could be, though, that that is the way that the data is being recorded. So, the Commonwealth Government in about 2018 commenced the Cyber Online Reporting Network, and, and that's really the best source of statistics. In relation to cybercrime. So, before that, we didn't really have a national database um, in relation to cybercrime statistics. Each state and territory police force kept their own records. And there's an element of underreporting in relation to cybercrime. You can imagine that some businesses um, don't want to suffer reputational damage if it became known that they were victims of cybercrime. There are some mandatory reporting networks for businesses over a certain size, so for data breaches, for, for companies over a certain size. But for small and medium businesses, there's no such obligation, and particularly uh, companies who rely on sort of word of mouth, like they don't want um, their reputation to be damaged, so they may decide to absorb the loss and not report it. I'm equally aware of some major companies who are the victims of very serious cybercrime and dollar value, not reporting it to police for the same reason, that they're they're concerned about the impact on their their share price, so that they make a a judgement call not to report it. They're concerned that if they do report it to police, and police then charge a person, that those charges are become the public on the public record, like the facts attended at court and they, they could be named as a victim. So they they don't want that information to be released. Like the police will never release that information. But we don't have control over what a court does. And like, you know, the criminal justice system in Australia is relying on open courts. So the courts are open. So if there were journalists sitting um, in the back of the courtroom, they can actually write details down, you know, about particular companies that are victims of crime. So these companies make a judgment call not to report those. So if we're running a proactive investigation, we actually might find the offender first, and then sometimes we backtrack. uh, And we may find, you know, the offender has, or offender or offenders in Australia, have sort of unexplained wealth. And if we trace the source of those funds, we may actually turn up, that we may actually identify uh, a victim company. And in that case, if we have an offender, To start with we then may approach the um the victim company and ask them for a statement about it and in some of those cases that they have never reported that matter to police previously
0: because we are seeing in the media a lot of cases coming up optus medibank private a range of companies being infiltrated hacked and so forth it seems to be uh, an epidemic of it from your side of the fence how does it look
1: well that's probably, it's probably true to say that there's a, a significant public awareness and, and they're more aware of that and um, the Commonwealth Government has passed some sort of mandatory reporting legislation for those companies, So the companies you've just named, uh, their turnover is, is so high that they, they are the, the large businesses that actually have mandatory reporting obligations in relation to data breaches and the like. But the Commonwealth Government decided to only apply that legislation to companies over a certain sites. So the small and medium businesses, that legislation does not apply. Therefore, they may equally suffer those sort of data loss or data breach type events and members of the public aren't aware of them.
0: What would be your advice to those sort of companies that don't report? Are they, are they missing an opportunity?
1: Well, they are um, because there are um, services at both at a state level and a Commonwealth level that help mitigate the risk. So some of them are concerned about cost. I mean, what police don't do is they don't go there and they don't mitigate the risk. So we investigate the crime, but we don't necessarily sort of patch out their systems to do that. But there are, uh, like cybersecurity in New South Wales, for example, their whole uh, remit is to go and help small and medium businesses try and patch their systems and ensure that they're not the victim of the crime in the future. And for all of them to do that, we need to know about the crime. You know, so the mum and dad type corner store type shops, they may not have the budget to build it, you know, pay for large sort of cybersecurity solutions. So they think the police won't do anything about it, so they, they don't report it. And
0: I think there's a, a certain helplessness, a powerlessness people seem to feel because they believe the offenders are overseas beyond the reach of police. I think that's
1: true, but it's not always the case. That is true. The, a lot of cyber offending is, occurs outside Australia. Um, so in this sort of space we would much prefer to talk about prevention than the typical arrest and charge, which is the traditional police approach to crime. And So if we can educate members of the public um, and we can teach them sort of good cyber security habits, then we're, we're far better off and, and we're far likely to sort of reduce that this particular crime type than simply going and arresting and charging offenders. Because it's not realistic that you could find a, an offender in Russia
0: and you get a warrant from a judge to go and arrest somebody right. there or deal with a local police force.
1: It's just not going to happen, is it? That, that's very true. Um, to my knowledge, I'm, I'm not aware of a single offender based overseas that has been extradited back to Australia and been charged with cyber offences. Obviously, we do do that with with more serious crime types, such as homicides. Uh, but in, in this sort of space, um, prevention and disruption is far more cost effective. So most offenders rely on social engineering. They want to trick someone into sending money where they should... That's really the simple thing. So, you know, when you get a message from somebody asking for funds, it's not necessarily that person. So there are a variety of offending behaviours where offenders are trying to use that social engineering to trick people into sending funds. So they could have uh, access to somebody's email. So uh, it's most commonly called a business email compromise where offenders get access to um, an email in a supply chain and they can compromise an email that was sent to either the payee and they would alter the Bean account number and the person would send funds rather than the intended recipient to what we call a money mule. A money mule is someone much like a drug mule who deals with the funds. A money mule could be unwitting or winning. So we have some money mules who don't know what they're doing. So for example, um, many victims of what are called romance scams are unwitting money mules. They think that they're in a relationship with a person online. That person online says, I'm a really good person, I've got employees, but I've got issues with my Australian bank account, would you mind if I move some money through them? And because they think they're in a legitimate relationship, they agree, but what they're actually doing is they're laundering the proceeds of other offending. We have people who are the victims of employment scams, the same thing. We see those signs where it says work from home, uh, easy money. It's generally too good to be true. Effectively, what um, the offenders are doing is tricking those people, the victims of employment scams, to um, move monies on their behalf and eventually it will go offshore. The main thing is with these type of offences is they need an Australian-based bank account for the offence to occur. So when you get, um, I mean, most internet banking uh, applications, if you try and send funds offshore, the application will tell you. If you've got a BSB for a bank that's set up in South Africa, you're banking application will give you a warning that it's not an Australian bank account. And some bank accounts don't actually allow you to send funds directly out of Australia. So by its very nature, these type of offenders need um, Australian-based bank accounts. In other situations, the offenders may set up bank accounts in the names of stolen identities. So they may have compromised data from somewhere and we have, you know, people unknowingly have bank accounts set up in their identities that are controlled by the offenders. And then in other cases, we have offenders who are straight out getting a percentage of the funds that they launder. So, yeah, so it's very hard to work out exactly where a money meal sits in this situation.
0: Yes, and what we're seeing increasingly is banks saying we're not responsible. The behaviours you should have known, you should have taken precautions and we're not going to refund it. That's that's becoming a, a horrible second chapter to these stories.
1: Yeah, that is correct because the banks distinguish between a cyber events such as sort of malware or ransomware where they say it's the fault of the technology and someone's lost funds because you know they've been hacked or whatever or someone has actually voluntarily hit send on the, the funds and they may be tricked but it's still someone behind the keyboard intentionally putting in their password and intentionally sending the funds somewhere they're just sending those funds to somewhere that they don't intend to send in those situations uh, it really depends on the, the individual bank some banks cover them some banks do not so that I am aware of a number of small businesses who have gone bankrupt as a result of being the victims of this business email compromise.
0: And you think of the heartache and misery on a human level that causes when you think you're doing the right thing and you think the bank's got you covered and really you've made a mistake
1: and you're going to pay for it. Yeah, that's correct. And even some cybersecurity insurance policies for small businesses don't cover that. It's um, business email compromise insurances are a bit like an extra, much as having windscreen insurance for a car is a little extra. You've got to tick the box, you've got to pay extra funds. People don't even know what a business email compromise is, so they don't tick the box. And in that case, they're not covered by their own insurance policies.
0: That phrase you used before, if it's too good to be true, it's not true. But these days, with the, with the lure and the social engineering, people are forgetting that dictum.
1: Uh, Very much so. And that's particularly uh, in the field of cryptocurrencies. Uh, There's uh, an amazing amount of um, FOMO if you're missing out in relation to cryptocurrencies. So people who have seen all these individuals making vast amounts of money with cryptocurrency and they think there's an opportunity for them to do the same. So we have offenders who are using famous Australian people. So for some reason they like David Kosh. David Kosh is a very popular person for offenders to copy. And, you know, you get these uh, Facebook messages saying, Koshy wants you to know something, the banks want to keep silent and this is a way to make money. That's more than likely going to be an offender who's going to be tricking you into what's called a, a cryptocurrency investment scam. And they're all over Facebook now. They are all over Facebook, yes. Mel Gibson does it as well. Mel Gibson. Apparently. <laughs> and, a, and a range of other celebrities. Yeah, uh, many, many celebrities do it. Uh, unfortunately, um, New South Wales Police and, and the other state and territory police forces, or in the AOP, the Australian Federal Police, we have no control over the algorithm that a lot of these social media companies use. And unfortunately, the big social media companies are all based in America. So we, as law enforcement, we can't change their algorithms as much as I'd like to be able to. We, we don't have any control over that. So these algorithms are having these uh, advertisements come up on people's feeds. And that, that FOMO, that few missing out, is pushing people to invest funds that, in places where they're just going to lose it. And the reality of cryptocurrency, where account holders are anonymous, it's almost impossible to recover those funds once they're gone.
0: And my experience with con men generally, whether cyber or, or in the real world, is that the victims feel humiliated and shamed and that they're less likely to say anything because they feel so stupid having been taken in. Um, by Mel Gibson or David Koch or whoever it
1: might be they're purporting to be. That is very true. And sometimes the only reason people step up to report it is they think the police are going to recover their funds. Uh, So we have to be really realistic here. We have to manage the expectations of victims, that if victims lost funds due to a cryptocurrency investment scam, there is little to no chance of getting those funds back. Oh, it's a sobering reality. But occasionally
0: you catch an offender who's onshore like Force Walana, Tell us about that job.
1: All right, so Force Walana commenced in the end of 2017 and that actually grew out of a another Strike Force called Strikeforce Cabernet. And Strikeforce Cabernet uh, was an investigation into what we call money mules um, in Australia and the goal of Strikeforce Cabernet was to identify the recruiters. Um, so much like a traditional drug investigation the goal of Strikeforce Cabernet was to identify the recruiters of people who were recruiting people who act as money mules, either wittingly or unwittingly in Australia. Strikeforce Walana uh, identified a group of people in Bega, in um, a little town in Southern New South Wales, who were all on NDIS funding. And these individuals had laundered uh, about 1.2 million Australian dollars to countries, uh, including America, uh, Indonesia, United Arab Emirates and Turkey. So we commenced an investigation into those people. It turned out that none of those people had the requisite intent and they were all tricked into being unwitting money mules, particularly because they were all on NDIS funding. And they all had um, fairly serious mental and physical disabilities. um, And they did not understand what they were doing. And the investigations led to a person uh, known as Fiaso Olawafemi who was actually in Billwood Detention Centre at the time. Uh, And once we identified uh, Oliver Femi, uh, we identified um, that he was actually using a number of other people who were working with him who were outside Billwood, who were receiving funds. um, And their funds were coming from a combination of business email compromises, uh, romance scams, and the fraudulent sale of goods. So the fraudulent sale of goods sometimes is colloquially known as a puppy scam where an item is listed on the internet for sale. Uh, that item could be a pet like a puppy, but it could equally be a caravan or a boat or something. The offenders would generally copy a legitimate item or whatever it is and try and sell it. And the funds would turn up in a Money Meals account and then be uh, laundered and uh, sent overseas.
0: Right, and so this is happening in was happening inside Villawood detention center. that's correct, you would have thought that would be a place where there'd be enough monitoring and so forth, but there are there are federal laws that that, that give the detainees certain communications rights which allow this to happen and it's
1: that's a f- frustration, I guess for you as a state police detective yeah that is correct. Detainees were having numerous smartphones, so some of them were having between six and eight smartphones per person, and each smartphone would have anywhere to um uh, 8 to 20 SIM cards were used in that phone. So you had, uh, you had offenders using n- numerous phone numbers and numerous handsets while in uh, Villawood Detention Centre. So Oluwafemi had an uh, offender who was on the outside who was what they called his money guy. And the money guy was the guy who would receive all the funds from the, uh, the money mules and then the money guy would then transfer all these funds to Nigeria.
0: Yes, your suspect was Nigerian.
1: That's correct. Yes,
0: and and uh, so he was awaiting deportation
1: back to Nigeria. Yes, he was. Uh, so he was here uh, legitimately, and Australian border force for other reasons, uh, not connected with this investigation, decided to cancel his visa. He would have wished to stay here forever, I'd imagine. Oh, I think so. Yes.
0: How much money was he making, and what, and what was the nature of the nature of the scam?
1: The syndicate made about three point five million dollars all up. Some of the offences. In the end, we weren't able to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was responsible for, that we were strongly suspected he was. And he was doing, he was facilitating business email compromises by using stolen identities. So offenders overseas would send, would compromise an email system. Uh, we knew that because we can identify that there are IP addresses and the fraudulent emails are coming from Lagos in Nigeria. We also got communications between him and the offenders offshore saying that, you know, expect funds tomorrow. So he was using stolen identities uh, to create bank accounts online that he controlled. And he used one particular stolen identity that established six bank accounts with six different financial institutions and all those accounts he controlled. And that particular victim was devastated when he found out that his identity was used uh, to launder all those funds. Um, and obviously, you know, you've got flow-on issues for that victim that he's got to prove to the banks that it wasn't him that were doing all those things because it would affect his credit rating and all sorts of things on in, into the future. And then on the outside, Femi would use the person they called the money guy and the money guy would receive uh, the funds from the different money mules. The money guy would then transfer these funds back to Nigeria.
0: So how did you identify this offending going on?
1: So we were quite lucky uh, in that our uh, money mules in bigger, were in contact with a common phone number. And that common phone number was an Australian phone number, but it was actually physically not in Australia. And from there, we were able to do some checks and we actually came back to a phone used by all Femi in, in Villawood. You had a challenge there to prove that this phone was being used by Femi. Yeah, that's correct. And that was, uh, that was quite a bit of a work, which is sometimes why members of the public gets frustrated with police investigations because they, they do take many months. So this uh, investigation commenced uh, at the end of 2017, but he wasn't arrested until September 2018. So that in that time period, that's when we had to collect all that evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was using those phones.
0: And did you... Question, Femi.
1: I did, yes. Uh, he, uh, I, I arrested him at Villawood. Uh, we had to apply for Commonwealth search warrants uh, because Villawood detention centre is Commonwealth grounds, so I couldn't get New South Wales warrant. Right. And he was um, taken back to Bankstown Police Station, where he was initially charged with only six offences um, to the value of about one point one million dollars. But we also seized from him, him and two other detainees. 18 smartphones and about 50 SIM cards. And from there, we were able to identify evidence of further offending. So Femi was ultimately charged um, with 29 offences. And he ended up pleading to a number of those. And he was sentenced to 70 years imprisonment. And at the end of that sentence, he's gonna be deported from Australia.
0: We'll go back to the New South Wales Police after a message from our sponsors. Whether you're thinking about buying your first home refinancing your home, or thinking about your next investment property, Police Bank has a range of home loans to help, with competitive interest rates for our members and even further discounts for members of the police force. Get in touch with Police Bank today to find out more. Eligibility and lending criteria apply. See terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop or further your policing career? We can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more. So what was his demeanour
1: when you... Because he must have thought he was pretty impregnable. He was very short. He, he actually... He, he was shaking a lot and he was quite, quite surprised. Uh, he exercised his common law right of silence and he didn't actually answer any questions. So um, interestingly enough, he actually had a, uh, a tertiary qualification as, a, um, as an electrical engineer. Um, so he um, and he was very well educated. And I think my understanding was he wanted to, to make this money to set up a hotel in Nigeria. He wanted to use the funds to set up a hotel in Nigeria. That was his dream.
0: And Femi was a good example, though, of someone who was very entrenched and was very happy to be where he was, uh, while uh, operating as a local arm of the international syndicate. Did you get a sense of the of the broader syndicate come flowing out from him?
1: So he definitely was the top of the food chain in Australia. He was directing people on the outside what to do, um, and he uh, he he was controlling all of the stolen identity bank accounts that that the funds was, went to the first hop, and then what would often happen is they would then transfer the funds to one of his other people who were working for him, and then they would withdraw the, the, the funds in cash and then they would give that cash to the money guy. So it was a bit uh, sort of old-school money laundering in that there was a lot of cash involved. One of the offenders told me that they ended up putting over $100,000 in, in an oil barrel that was put in a shipping container full of clothes and was sent to Sierra Leone. that's another way that they got it offshore was that they physically moved the Australian dollars in cash out of Australia. As you say you got a bit lucky in this one
0: and there's a lot of this going on I guess you're learning more about how to to, from experiences like uh, Willana what the um, the modus operandi is now.
1: Yes and um, and I can say that since I've been in the cybercrime squad the offenders have also uh, become smarter and the, the offenders have Change their MO based on successful investigations.
0: Right, this, like most forms of crime, this is an arms race. One side is looking at the other, trying to work out how to get an advantage.
1: Yes, that is very true. So, you know, I, I would imagine that that whole, you know, putting cash into a ship, shipping like a oil barrel and shipping out of Australia is just done, not done anymore. But we have seen offenders buy gold bullion and then they fly out of Australia with gold bullion.
0: What would you predict would be? The things people should look out for, given they're learning from your successful investigations, they're moving to new scams, what will be the
1: next phase of this? Well, I think that there's always going to be some form of communication where people are going to be asked for funds by somebody who's not the person that they think they are. So uh, we've had people purport to be someone's kids, for example, and initially they started with compromising emails. Well, now they're using AI um, to basically... Uh, send fake phone calls and they're, they're, they're copying um, children's voices. So when parents get, you know, the phone call from the kid who might, might, might not be in Australia saying, I've been arrested, I need money for, for bail, that may not be your son or daughter, that may actually be the offender. So I, I can see that um, that sort of um, text-to-voice, or voice-to-voice software uh, and AI is going to dramatically change the way that offenders approach their victims. Well, my strong advice is always speak to the person before sending any money. And also, if you're worried about that sort of, you know, impersonation of your child, ask them questions that only your child's gonna know the answer to. That, that's the only way that you're gonna get around that. It's yeah. gonna be a very generic story. And there's always gonna be a story as to why they can't do something. So for example, if you're talking on Zoom, it's, oh, my camera's broken. So I can't, I can't put my camera on, so you can't see me. If you're talking on like, like online, there, there's going to be an explanation that may sound plausible, but it's going to uh, preserve the anonymity. Like so, to ensure that they're not going to actually, you're not going to see them in, in real
0: life. Yeah, fascinating. I've got to ask you though, have you ever fallen victim to any of these things? No, I haven't. I, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> the cyber cops have been hit them; we're all in trouble. So, as I say, this is becoming such a growth area, but you find yourself in a a good spot in your career having done a bunch of other things.
1: Yeah, well, that's why I really enjoy this sort of work because I find every investigation is different, but it is rewarding on the few occasions I've been able to recover people's funds. It doesn't happen very often. I said, because the majority of funds are not in Australia, but I have in the past um, successfully got some people's funds back from them. Um, And I mean, if, if I can prevent one person from falling victim to this crime in the future, then I think I've, I've, I've had a good day. The problem is that's a very hard thing to categorise. How would you? How would I know? I would never know that I've, I've done that. But I like to think that someone listening to this uh, this program would turn around and say, "Oh, I'm not going to send funds after listening to this uh, this podcast."
0: Yes, absolutely. We'll be also in, including in the in the show notes some some helpful links and so forth that will uh, enable people to know the difference between a scam and what's real. These crooks are slippery. They're offshore. They often get away, unfortunately. But it must have been great to slap the handcuffs on Femi and take him into custody.
1: Uh, yeah, those sort of resolutions are, are particularly satisfying. Archer, a job that just lasted nine nine months. It took nine months to get to that point. So yes, that was a very satisfying point.
0: And to see the shock on his face.
1: Yes, that's correct. He was very shocked.
0: On behalf of a few of those victims, I thank you. I thank you for your service to the people of New South Wales. Thank you. That was Detective Sergeant Julian Thornton of the Cybercrime Unit. If you want to report a cybercrime, call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to esafety.gov.au or cyber.gov.au. Next episode, we go Inside the Raptor Organised Crime Squad taking on the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs. Inside the New South Wales Police Force is a Real Crime Australia production in association with the New South Wales Police Force. The host producer is Adam Shand. Editing and imaging by Matt Dwyer. For New South Wales Police, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Senior Constable Ashley Bold and Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, speak to us on 131 728 or visit policebank.com.au because banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop? or further your policing career, we can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more.